The subject of the talk this evening is the five aggregates are not self. And as you might uh, deduce from the title, this is going to be a talk about one of the Buddha's central teachings, the teachings on not self. The teaching on not self is one of the most powerful teachings that the Buddha gave, and it's a teaching that's unique, I believe, to Buddhism. It is often paired with two other pointings, which are the pointings to impermanence and unsatisfactoriness. And together, these three, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self, are considered the three characteristics of things that exist. So tonight, we're just going to look at the uh, last of these, the teaching on not self. Impermanence, you're probably fairly familiar with. Bonnie is going to talk about uh, unsatisfactoriness or dukkha in a couple of nights. So this will sort of round out the, the three characteristics. The teaching on not-self is uh, a powerful teaching, a profound teaching, but it's also one of the hardest to understand in all of Buddhism. So welcome to the evening. <laughs> in that it is not easy to understand, I just want to offer this as an exploration of the theme and it's not that you are supposed to get it all tonight. Some of you may already have a very good understanding of this topic. And hopefully this will be a refresher and maybe a little deepening. If this is somewhat new to you, then don't strain too much conceptually. Uh, just kind of take in the drift of it and don't bother thinking too much about it. Don't worry if it doesn't all make sense. It's, it's not supposed to on first hearing. And also notice if there's any resistance to hearing it. You know, we are a little bit attached to the self. So there might not be an interest in hearing about not being there. So just notice that. So what the Buddha said is that the sense of self is not really intrinsic to our experience of being a human being. But it's something that arises based on our concepts and our beliefs. So in meditation, we kind of want to look at what that means. Is it possible for us to have experiences where the sense of self isn't present or isn't really intrusive? How does that feel? And how would it feel when the self comes in again? This belief in self the Buddha more or less equated with this fundamental factor of ignorance. One of the fundamental ways that ignorance manifests is that we don't understand the truth about the sense of self. And this is a cause for a lot of uh, self-concern. And the more we dwell on self-concern, the more we isolate ourselves from the wider field of humanity, creatures, and nature. And that isolation, which is engendered by our thinking, leads to a sense of separation. The separation leads to a sense of fear. We create this strong duality between the self and the other, between self and the world. And then we live in that uh, tension, once we've created the duality and firmly established it and believe in it, there's a tension that we live within that creates a fundamental anxiety in, in us. There's this wonderful teacher from India 
passed away 20 or more years ago, named Nisargadatta Maharaj. He was a Vedanta teacher who lived and taught in Bombay. Wrote a powerful book called I Am That. Highly recommended if you haven't encountered it. And this was one of his comments. All yogas, and yoga is a word that just means uh, joining or union. So he would see our way of practice as another yoga in his system. All yogas, all real spiritual practices, have only one aim, to save you from the calamity of separate existence. So right now, we are kind of in that calamity. Most of us are living from that sense of separation. And the teaching on not-self is to bring us out of that, to see clearly the way things are and bring us out of that. Because when we release the self-concern, we can open in a much broader way to life. We have a much more inclusive vision of life. And the boundlessness of the Brahma-viharas are one expression of that. And the expression of wisdom leads to spaciousness, openness, lightness, and ease. So in the talk this evening, we want to look at how the self gets formed and how it might be to see things without it. So this notion of I, you know, basically self appears whenever we say the words I, me, my, mine, and really believe in them, right? I mean, it's possible the Buddha talked about I. He used it, but he wasn't caught in it. But for the most part, when we use it, we believe in it. And um, that's a problem. So it appears frequently in our thoughts. It's the center of our life. It's kind of our North Star. Everything revolves around the I, our thoughts, our views, our actions, our speech, our decisions, our values, our life's direction. And so we want to understand um, what it really means. This I seems so self-evident. But have you ever found it? Have you ever come across it in meditation? You've been exploring mind and body in a very dedicated way for these two weeks and a long time before. Have you ever found this I? So William James, the philosopher, said, when I search for myself, all I can find is a tickle at the back of my throat. And the Dalai Lama said, when you think something is real, but you can't find it, that's a sign of delusion. It may not be as real as you think. So the classical analogy is you're walking in the forest and you come upon this um, thing on the ground that is uh, colored, has like, like white, red, and green, and it's about this long, and it's in a coil on the ground. And as you're walking along, you're convinced, that's a snake. And so you jump back in fear. And as you get a little closer, you look at it more precisely. Oh, it's a piece of rope. I thought it was a snake, but it's actually a piece of rope. Your perception has become clarified. Now you're no longer afraid. The rope's not going to bite you. So it's just this way. We think that this human body and mind and heart contain a self. And that's scary. That's separating. It leads to isolation. We're afraid of dying. When we understand it the way it is, it takes that fear away. 
So it's a, it's a matter of correcting our perception. So this use of the word I comes with some, what I would call faulty logic. We use it all the time. We've used it since we learned to speak. It's been a very common word for us. And we've just kind of built our views around the conventions of language. But we've never really stopped to think about it. So let's look at some of these ways language is just kind of funny. So let me ask um, a simple question. How tall are you? And you can answer that, you know, pretty easily. I would say I'm five feet, ten inches tall. So what I really mean is the body is five feet, ten inches tall, right? My thoughts aren't five, ten. My mood isn't five, ten. But the body is five, ten. So here we're using I to mean the body. I am 5'10 means the body is 5'10. We're equating I with the body. Okay, now let me ask, what color are your eyes? Again, easy question. I'd say, this is not a trick. So I'd say, my eyes are brown. So now, I'm not the body. That would be the eyes. You know, if I were to say, I'm brown, that would mean... I'm the eyes, but I'm saying my eyes are brown. That means now I'm the owner of the body. And that means something separate from it that possesses it. So which are you? Are you the body or are you the owner of it? And can you be both? Does that really make sense? That you're both the body and the owner of it? Okay, let's look at the mind. We might talk about our emotions and say, I'm happy or I'm sad. So here, we're equating the I with the emotion of happiness or sadness. So here, I am the emotion. But we can also talk about my joys and my sorrows. And now we are the owner of the emotion. So which are you? Are you the emotion or the owner of it? Can you be both? Another way that we commonly think of ourselves at least I do, you can tell me if you do, we feel that I is really a small being that's located in the head, (laughs) behind the eyes and between the ears, kind of in the center here, that's looking out at the world and having all kinds of experiences. So this I is doing the seeing, it's doing the hearing, it's doing the observing, and it's somehow separate from what is being seen and heard and observed. So there's this separate little being that's like the essence. It's like the little guy right in the center of things that's observing, watching, hearing, etc., experiencing it all. So this is the sense of I as observer. There's also the sense that this I should be able to control things. As we look around, we should be able to make our body feel better when we sit. We should have a better mood when we wake up in the morning. And it's this kind of experiencer and controller that has that responsibility. So these are five ways we use the word I, as the body, as the owner of the body, as the emotions, as the owner of the emotions, and as a separate observer 
somewhere inside the head. Can all those be true? Or have we created a really confused concept that meditation might help us straighten out? Maybe. Maybe. So this is a quote from uh, the Buddha. In whatever way they conceive of the self, the truth is ever other than that. We may be conceiving it a little bit wrong. I had a teacher who put it even more bluntly. He said, everything you think is wrong. (laughs) Though that's a good wake-up call. It reminds me of something that someone said on a talk radio show. Talk radio shows are not generally the font of wisdom in this country, but one uh, incisive comment was about the mind, and this radio personality said, the mind, often wrong, seldom in doubt. (laughs) So this is kind of how it is about the self. We really believe it's like this, and we seldom doubt it. But it may be helpful to believe in this. Because as long as we believe in the self in this way, we're bound up with separation, we're bound with fear. So how did the Buddha see? How did an awakened being see our process, our uh, existence? So when you and I look at one another, typically we see a person Certainly before we get engaged in meditative insight, we look at each other and we see a person. There's a 6th century commentary from Sri Lanka called the Vasudhimagga. It was a compilation of meditation techniques and insight practices from that time. It's still used today as a manual in uh, Buddhist countries. And in the Vasudhimagga, the text says that imagining that you're looking at someone and seeing a person is not the way a trained meditator would see it. And the analogy he uses is with a butcher. Now, personally, I've been a vegetarian for many years. I'm committed to animal welfare, and I don't like to talk about the suffering and slaughter of animals. Nonetheless, this text uses the analogy of a butcher. So please excuse that, but this is the classical reference. He said, when a butcher carves up the carcass of a cow that he's going to sell for meat. He doesn't cut it going to himself, cow, cow, cow. He goes rump, sirloin, tenderloin, ribs. Because he's so familiar with the cow, he knows what those parts are. He doesn't just see cow, he sees the details of cow. So the Vasudhimaga said, that one who has looked deeply into the mind-body process doesn't just say person. They see the particular parts that make up a person, both in the mental sphere and in the physical sphere. So when the Buddha talked about what a person is, he used two different models. You could say he saw in two ways. So one of them is six types of sense organs and six objects. So this is from a discourse called the Sutta on Totality from the Samyutta Nikaya. So I'll just read a section of it. Bhikkhus, and this applies to you all because you're practitioners. Bhikkhus, what is the totality of life? 
Listen, attend carefully, and I will teach you the totality of life. It is simply the eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and sensations, the mind and mind objects. Anyone who said they were going to describe anything beyond this as the totality would not be speaking of something they knew about. This is pretty exhaustive, isn't it? It describes our experience as human beings. The six senses, including the mind, is the sixth, and their corresponding objects. That's what our experience is made up of. It's beautiful because this is so simple. Anytime there are only six things happening, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and mind objects, and their, their organs. So this maps really nicely to our meditation practice. You may have noticed that a lot of our instructions kind of follow this, this schema. The Buddha mostly used the map of the six sense bases to cut through craving by highlighting where we get desirous of pleasant experience at the six sense bases. But there's another model that he used just as often, and that's the model that John talked about a couple of nights ago called the five aggregates. The five aggregates also describe this totality of experience, but it divides it up differently. This device the Buddha used to cut through wrong view. Wrong view meaning the sense of belief in a self. So we're going to just examine this a little bit tonight in looking through the false way that we create a sense of self. And I want to say that this can sound abstract, you know, perhaps in listening to the talk the other night, uh, and perhaps in listening to this talk, you'll think, oh, this is just intellectual theory. You know, this is like Buddhist jargon that doesn't have anything to do with me and, and my real experience of life. But I want to share that the five aggregates really became alive for me and meaningful when uh, one of my older sisters died. She was five years older than me, and she died when she was 51, quite unexpectedly. She had an illness for a long time, but it wasn't life-threatening. And then all of a sudden, one evening, she had an attack of some kind. She went into cardiac arrest, and the... Uh, Medical technicians were not able to bring her back. I had talked with her on the phone just a few days before, and she was bright and vital and energetic, and she was a big personality. I had a close connection with her. She had a lot of humor and a lot of heart. And to hear that she had passed away so suddenly was really a shock to me. And I'm sure you have probably all come into contact with this around death that somebody can seem so alive, so real, so solid, such a strong person, and then at some point they're just gone. And I couldn't make sense of it. She had been there and then she was just gone. The thing that helped me understand it was looking at her experience through the five aggregates and understanding the different elements that make up a human being. And by understanding her I came to understand myself a lot more deeply. And it brought me a lot, I'd say, a lot greater peace and ease with the process of dying. 
so the five aggregates um, can be very meaningful in our exploration of them. They are really a description of life and by extension, a description of the ending of life. So I think John probably explained uh, the Pali word is kanda. It uh, covers five elements, form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. The first aggregate is physical. It means all physical matter in the five senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. The other four are mental. Um, And so I don't want to go through those uh, in detail because I think John probably covered them quite well. I do want to highlight a little bit uh, this factor of perception because perception is something we don't spend a lot of time talking about, but it's a really powerful uh, quality. So I think I may have mentioned in a morning uh, discussion that what we see in the visual field is just patches of form and color. It's quite interesting, especially if you take out the, the added dimension of depth. If you cover an eye and just look with one eye, you take away the depth perception. And what we really see are patches of form and color. When artists come to learn to paint accurately, they have to learn to see this um, two-dimensional view of things. It's just a play of light and shape in order to represent it correctly. So in this model of form and color, we have learned over time to draw elements out and assign names to them. Cushion, floor, person, chair, lamp, door, ceiling, etc. We had to learn that. We might think it happens automatically, but it's not like that. This is a Uh, description from Oliver Sacks, the neurologist who had been involved in treating a a man who had been blind from the time he was very young, been blind almost from infancy, and then found out that he could have an operation to restore his sight. So the man's name was Virgil. He was lying in the hospital bed. His sight had been restored. Sacks was there and the surgeon was there and they were peeling off the bandages from his eyes. And everybody thought he would go, wow, this is fantastic, I can see again. You know, here you all are and it's just fantastic. It didn't happen like that. So this is uh, Sachs's description of Virgil's uh, first moments after the surgery. He seemed to be staring blankly, bewildered, without focusing at the surgeon who stood before him still holding the bandages. Only when the surgeon spoke, saying, well, did a look of recognition cross Virgil's face. Virgil told me later that in this first moment he had no idea what he was seeing. There was light, there was movement, there was color, all mixed up, meaningless, a blur. Then out of the blur came a voice that said, well, Then and only then did he finally realize that this chaos of light and shadow was a face, and indeed the face of his surgeon. So Virgil had um, 
gone through the years when the perceptual wiring got developed in the brain and he hadn't learned how to do that. So as a grown man, he couldn't recognize things. With a lot of training, some of that perception started to occur for him naturally, but it never came back fully the way it is for us. So he went through the rest of his adult life struggling to perceive objects out of the blur of form and color. So for us, we do this perception almost automatically. I'm going to add a little PS here because it ties into what for me is an interesting question. There was a question this morning about whether mindfulness is a conceptual activity. The Abhidhamma says that the proximate cause for mindfulness to arise is strong perception. So can you get that? When you perceive clearly what your experience is in the nature of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, in-breath, out-breath, mood, feeling, tone, etc., mindfulness happens. Mindfulness happens with the recognition of what we're experiencing, and that is perception. So when there's strong perception, mindfulness follows. Now, is perception a conceptual activity? When you walk into the room and you see Sally and you recognize her as Sally, does it require words to do that? Or when you look up at this altar and you see the statue of the Buddha, you recognize that's what the statue is of. Do you say words every time you see that? It doesn't require words, does it? If you see a good friend, do you say to yourself, good friend is coming? (laughs) No, you just recognize that's a good friend. So perception is built on names. We recognize it's in the category mat, chair, statue, painting, door, etc., But the recognition when it happens doesn't require the concepts to come up again. So in this way, perception doesn't have to be a conceptual activity and mindfulness doesn't need to be a conceptual activity, though it is built on our prior familiarity with those categories. So I hope that's clear. Perception is very powerful because once we perceive something in the world, we form a view about it, and then we act in the world based on that view. So if we perceive someone as friendly to us, we act to them on that view, and we tend to respond with friendliness. If we perceive someone as hostile or critical to us, we form a view about that person, and then we tend to respond to them out of that view. So the moment of perception is a very powerful moment in forming our uh, mental structures, and then uh, conditions our actions. One of the kickers about perception is it's not always reliable. I was practicing on a meditation retreat uh, on the East Coast. It was a fall morning. Doing my walking meditation out of doors, and all of a sudden I heard a brass band coming up the street. I distinctly heard horns and trumpets 
and they were coming closer and closer as I was walking. So this is a little bit unusual in a small town in the middle of Massachusetts to have a marching band come up the street on a fall morning. So I stopped my walking and I just listened. And gradually the marching band transformed into the bumps and rattles and squeaks of a garden cart that was being pushed down a gravel track on two bicycle tires. So I thought I had heard a brass band. I was convinced I heard drums and trumpets, horns, and I hadn't. I'd heard a garden cart on bicycle tires. So perception is not always reliable, but I might have reacted out of thinking there was a brass band coming. So one of the ways the Buddha said we don't perceive things correctly is that we think things are permanent when they're not. We think things are going to be satisfying when they're not. We think things have a self when they don't. And we think things are really beautiful when they may actually be a little dangerous. So these are our misperceptions um, that go on a lot. And part of the difficulty I'd had with my sister's death was some assumption of her permanence, of her continuity, that hadn't taken into account the way uh, she actually was. So perception is also interesting because sometimes when we put a label on things, we stop seeing it correctly. So notice this if you label something as pain in the body. Sometimes that word forms a block and makes it difficult to feel exactly what's there. Or there may be a strong emotion like hurt or regret. And you know, oh, that's, you know, that's either hurt or that's guilt. And maybe the word guilt colors it so much you can't get in and actually feel it. So perception can, can cloud our ability to be with a direct experience. So just to be aware of that. So for example, this big metal thing in front of me, I assume most of you perceive it as a bell because we strike it at the end of sittings and makes a sound and it's very useful. So you look at it normally, you perceive it as a bell. Could it be a, a begging bowl? Could there be a big monk or nun who would like to carry it around and have you fill it up with rice and curry? Sure. If you had a big statue, could you turn it upside down on the statue and it'd be a really nice little chapeau? Sure, it could be. If we get attached to the word bell, we don't see all those possibilities. We don't see the thing just in its bare suchness because the, the word has conditioned us. So a Zen, a Zen koan, they might hold this out, a Zen master might hold it out and go, what is this? If you say it is a striker, I will hit you. <laughs> but if you say it is not a striker, I will hit you too. <laughs> I, I heard a lot of stories like that, and that's why I ended up in Vipassana instead of, <laughs> instead of Zen. I had a feeling I would get hit a lot. So there's a, there, was this, there was this nice dialogue um, kind of along these lines. In the, in the late 70s, these two really respected Buddhist teachers came together. In, they were both in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the same time. 
One was Kalu Rinpoche, who was a great um, master in the Tibetan Kagyu lineage. And the other was Sansanim, who was a Zen master from Korea. And some friends were in touch with them both and thought, wow, it'd be really great to bring these two enlightened beings together. And you know those stories about how enlightened beings totally recognize each other's enlightenment and they're just like two mirrors meeting each other. They're both so empty. And there are these, you know, tremendous heart openings of recognition for kindred spirits. They thought it would be something like that. It wasn't. (laughs) So they sat them down, they served them tea and put out some fruit for them. And as they were still just sort of settling in and chatting a little bit, Sansanim, the Zen master picked up one of the oranges and held it out to Kalu Rinpoche and said, what is this? (laughs) Because that's the way he was used to checking someone's enlightenment from the Zen tradition. What is this? And Kalu just kind of looked at it, smiled a little bit, kept doing his beads, and he was doing some mantra on his mala. Sansanim didn't get an answer, so he, he held out the orange again. He said, What is this? And Kalu just turned to his translator and said something, and the translator said, Oh, Rinpoche asked, Don't they have oranges in Korea? (laughs) So it's all about perception, right? So it's kind of interesting. That's an interesting story because sometimes cross culturally, Dharma doesn't exactly go that easily. So even expressions of dharma are culturally conditioned, helpful, helpful to remember. So this is the area of uh, perception and how it can be sometimes accurate, sometimes not so accurate. Fourth aggregate being volitional formations, mostly thoughts and emotions, movements of mind, and then consciousness, the knowing quality that receives all the different sense objects that holds them and knows them in that very basic way. So our human experience is made up of form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. That's it. Why is that freeing? Why is that significant? Because there's one element there that we think about a lot that's not in that list. There's no I in that list. There's nothing in the center that they all belong to. There's nothing in the center that controls them. There's nothing in the center that is the essence of those aggregates. Our experience is just form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. If you want to condense it a little bit and maybe make it a little more approachable, think of it as um, three aggregates. So collapse, feeling, perception, and formations all together. Call those formations. And it makes it a little more um, immediate for me. So our experience is we have a body, we have consciousness that reveals sense objects, and then we have thoughts and emotions you know, feeling, perception, meditative states like calm, concentration, equanimity. These are all the mental formations that happen inside us. This is what a human being is, these three things. There's not a separate self. 
in the middle of all that. So it's kind of like, um, anybody have any trouble recognizing what this is? Can you all see at the back? This is a pen, right? Everybody would agree this is a pen. We have no trouble identifying it and naming it. But suppose I start to uh, take it apart. Suppose I deconstruct the pen for us to look at. And now I've got a cap, I've got a barrel, I've got an end, I've got a cartridge, and I've got a tip. Is this still a pen? Would you call this a pen? No. It's not really, is it? It's just pieces. When they're put together in a certain way, we put it all back together, then we call it a pen. But when the pieces disassemble, it's no longer a pen. This is the way it is with a human being. We're so accustomed to seeing these pieces joined that all we can think of is human being or pen. But when we apply meditative insight to our experience, we see that we are only made up of these different pieces. They are not intrinsically bound together. This is what my sister's death revealed. Her formations and her consciousness were not intrinsically bound to her form. At death, they separated. That's what I hadn't understood before. I thought they were intrinsically bound as one thing. But in death, the pieces come apart. And then we understand the human being is made up of different pieces. It's not just one thing. So we still use the pen. It's still quite useful. I can describe it to you. It's a ballpoint pen. It's um, gray and black in its barrel. And it uh, writes with black ink. It's a medium tip. That's a useful designation. It's useful to know that. But we don't deceive ourselves that the pen is one substantial entity. We see how it's just been put together. It's a collection of pieces that we conventionally designate as pen. So this is what we want to see about ourselves. We're a collection of pieces. Form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. That's all. Now, we can conventionally designate ourselves also, and that's useful. We can conventionally designate Sally. We can conventionally designate Guy or Ramona, all of us. And we all have characteristics just like that pen does. For instance, you know, I'm white, I'm middle-aged. You might say elderly, but I say (laughs) middle-aged. I'm a cisgender male, I was raised middle class, I'm able-bodied. All those descriptions are accurate and they've all shaped me in different ways. So the characteristics are not irrelevant. We know what the characteristics of this being are, but we don't imagine that that's the end of it. Or that that defines something inalterable in us. So we look at these components that we're starting to recognize as the sense bases or the aggregates, and we understand they're all conditioned. 
every one of the aggregates is conditioned. So the Buddha pointed to this in actually quite a famous discourse called the Discourse on the Characteristic of Not-Self. It was the second discourse he ever gave. In his first discourse, he taught the Four Noble Truths. And one of his friends, the group of five friends, got enlightened. And in the second discourse, they all became enlightened. So this is core stuff. So here's the way he approached it. And John may have said some of this. I'm sorry if I'm repeating. But the, the Buddha asked the group of five, they were old friends of his from the spiritual path, is form permanent or impermanent? And they were all pretty savvy, so they said impermanent, right? All physical matter is subject to change, even the sun subject to change. Then he said, is what is impermanent able to give lasting happiness or does it end up being in some way unsatisfying? And they said, it can't give lasting happiness because of its impermanent nature. Not capable of giving a lasting happiness because it will change. And then he said, is what is impermanent, unsatisfactory, and subject to change fit to be regarded? This is mine. This I am. This is myself. He's sort of saying, why would you put yourself on something that's going to go away? If you think about it, that would only lead to unhappiness to do that. Because each of the components, form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness, are all impermanent, unsatisfactory, and subject to change. Why would we claim any of them as self? They're all going to disappoint at some, at some, at some time. The other interesting thing is that you know, sometimes people say, well, I'm all, those, I'm all those things together. I'm the body and I'm its owner. I'm the emotions and I'm their owner. And I'm the observer who sits in the head and looks out on everything. I'm all of that together. Then I would say, you can consider yourself that if you see that you're arising and passing every moment. Because all those pieces are arising and passing every moment. So, Nagarjuna, who is the great philosopher of emptiness in the Buddhist tradition, put it like this. Were mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. You get that flavor? If we identify with the five aggregates, we have to feel ourselves coming and going the way the aggregates come and go. But we don't feel ourselves that way, do you? Do you feel yourself coming and going moment by moment? Not usually. But if you really want to identify as the five aggregates and the body and the mind and the observer and all of that, you have to feel yourself coming and going moment after moment. Then it would be okay to say that, but we don't feel that. Because in fact, we have different assumptions about the self. And this is a core thing that it's really important to reflect on. What we mean by self, sure, most of the time we mean this conventional designation. You know, I'm a male, I'm a certain age, I'm a certain height, I have this background and these characteristics and this conditioning. It kind of makes up this person. We, we think that. But we attribute some things to the self that are over and above that. The, the central one is we attribute continuity. We think that there's some permanence or ongoing nature 
to this thing we call I. And a simple question, don't you feel like the same person now who went to third grade? If you link up all your memories, doesn't it feel like you've been, I've been there for all those years? Or just over the course of this retreat, don't you feel like the same person who walked in the door a couple of weeks ago? Well, of course you feel different in many ways, but there's this continuity we, as, we attribute to self. If we didn't have this assumption of continuity, you wouldn't be afraid of dying. We're afraid of dying because we see the continuity coming to an end. What's going to die? Me. Me is going to continue up to the point of death, but then there's this cliff that ends it. And that's scary to me because the assumption is the me no longer continues then. Okay, so that's one thing. The second is that we feel ourselves at the center of experience and in a way um, separate from the experience. Like when we, when we say something like, um, I have joys, we feel ourselves separate from the experience of the joy. I have sorrows, we feel ourselves separate from the experience of the sorrows. So there's this um, assumption of a self in the middle of everything. That's actually, if you look at it closely, it's an identification with the fifth aggregate of consciousness. It's consciousness that receives joys. It's consciousness that receives sorrows. And when we identify with consciousness, then we say, I am receiving joy. I am receiving sorrow. We think that we should be um, unitary, right? The self should be unitary. Otherwise, like how many selves do you think you are? Usually people who think they're more than one self, somebody calls the paramedics (laughs) for them. This is not generally considered a sign of mental health. So we think we're one, not many. So are you both your liver and your compassion? How many selves are we? You know, liver, compassion, toenail, perception, pleasant feeling tone, joy, eyeballs. And we think we should be unique, right? My self is different from your self. So some of the aggregates fail on this count. We'll we'll get to that in a minute. So just think about this body, right? If we claim it as I or mine, we can either have a lot of pride about that or we can have a certain amount of embarrassment, even shame. You know, we don't, maybe don't really want the body that we've got. But did you have anything to do with how it came out? Did you choose it? Did you shape it? You know, by, by, by diet, by exercise, by healthcare, we have a little bit of influence. But did you choose how tall you are? How broad your shoulders are? Whether you're dark or fair? We didn't choose any of that. What did? Well, our father's sperm met our mother's egg. They connected. They lived in the womb for nine months. The cells multiplied and specialized Something popped out into the world. It was nourished by milk and water and food and air and sunlight. 
and it grew, 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 and here it is today. Totally out of our control. It was just a physical process that got started at the moment of conception, and now it has unfolded to be this. Can you really take responsibility for how it has turned out? And yet we do all the time, don't we? We assign I to the body, and we feel either proud or embarrassed. But actually it's completely out of our control because the body is just part of physical nature. It's just nature that did this. It's not our will. This is a result of processes in physical nature. So um, one of my teachers in Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa, put it this way. He said, this body came out of nature. It's part of nature. It never departed from nature and it belongs to nature. Give it back to nature. That'll be a big relief for you. So you can think about emotions like this too. Emotions are just part of mental nature. Every human being has the same range of emotions. We all have fear and joy and anger and happiness, sadness, contentment. We all have the whole range of them. This is just part of the mental nature that goes with being a human being. So we don't have to claim these as I or mine. Now, consciousness is an interesting faculty because that's just nature too. Consciousness is part of mental nature. And the interesting thing about this one, why it doesn't make sense to identify with consciousness, either is just the observer, that's one way, or in more sophisticated meditation terms, I am vast awareness. Everything comes and goes within me I am not the comings and goings. I am the vast awareness that holds it all. You know, this could be a philosophical view. But that awareness isn't really any different between me and you and you and all of us. That awareness is the same. So there's nothing unique, therefore there's nothing that can be called a separate self, a unique I in that. Okay. So, the sense of I is not intrinsic. How is it generated? Shortly after Ananda ordained, he was the Buddha's cousin and attendant for the last 25 years of the Buddha's life. Very close to the Buddha. After Ananda ordained, another monk was giving him some instruction. And the other monk told him, it is by clinging that the notion I am occurs, not without clinging. And by clinging to what? Does I am arise by clinging to form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness? So this is a really interesting comment. The I isn't there until we cling to one of the aggregates. It's taking a hold of a part of our experience that constructs the I and gives us that sense of self. The Buddha put it in in similar terms. The Buddha was asked, how does the belief in a self come to be? He said, an untaught ordinary person, this is a key phrase from his teaching, an untaught ordinary person is someone who hasn't heard the Dharma, hasn't understood the pointing of the Dharma. Untaught ordinary person regards form as self. Okay, so this would be like saying, I am the body, regarding form as self. Or self as possessing form, 
This would be, I am the owner of the body. Or form in self, which would be the body is part of me. So how would that make sense? I'm the vast awareness and the body is part of that vast awareness. So the body is part of me. Or self is in form. I'm really inside the body, inside the head looking out at everything that's happening. So these are four ways of identifying with form. And then you can multiply that by five for all five aggregates. So these are 20 ways that we construct a sense of self. I'll let you go through the other 16. You have another two weeks or a month, so. But more, more simply, the eye gets built when we grasp at any phenomenon at a sense door. So simple example, let's say there's a pain in the knee. You're sitting and there's a pain in the knee. If you're just very clear and mindful, you'll just note unpleasant sensation. But if the grasping comes upon it, maybe there's some fear, there's some worry, there's some frustration, you go, my knee hurts. The my is extra. Even the knee is extra, truth to tell. All you really know is unpleasant sensation. But when we turn to it and we go, oh, that's my knee and that's my pain, we create a sense of self that wasn't there before. So that's the turning to and taking a hold of out of some kind of fear or desire, generally. So you can take a look at this with any experience at the sense doors where you start hearing the word I or my. So for instance, um, some fear arises and the thought is, oh, that's my old pattern. That's a form of grasping and a form of identifying, links it through time, belief about the self, I'm the owner of that old pattern. So what if the fear just arose and all you knew was fear and there was no I or my connected? Then the sense of self isn't arising. So this momentary grasping and creating a sense of I or my is the activity that we call selfing. We construct a self moment by moment when we take hold of something and claim it. That's all. If you don't do that, sense of self never has to arise. So this is uh, the Buddha continuing. Therefore, all form should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. When there's no grasping and self is not created, how does that feel? If you've had that insight or that understanding feels good, doesn't it? It feels open, spacious, peaceful, free, easy. So this is a very interesting place to examine and pay attention to in meditation practice. When is the mind simply open, receiving sense impressions at the six sense doors, and when does grasping take place that claims one of those, driven by greed or aversion, typically? Then contraction comes in, then struggle comes in, conflict comes in, the self comes in, sense of self. So notice for yourself, when are things free of that sense of self? How does that feel? And then when does a grasping moment take place that gives birth 
to a sense of self. It's very helpful to notice. This opening of the door to seeing not self is not a cold intellectual experience. When we are able to see without the contraction of self, the world is more open, the heart is more open, and we feel less burdened. We feel lighter, feel easier without that pressure. Jack Cornfield tells this story of uh, visiting an old monk in Sri Lanka when he was still a monk. And he was a young guy and a Westerner, and the monk thought, well, I'll, I'll check this young monk out. And he said, oh, what do you understand as the central teaching of the Buddha? And Jack said, well, my understanding of the central teaching is that there really is no self within the field of our experience, no separate self. And the monk said, oh, very good. He said, no self, no problem, no problem. And he just started laughing. So this is the experience of no self. Check it out. Take a look in your own practice and see what it feels like when this grasping insistence isn't happening. And this kind of makes sense of this famous saying of Maharaj, whom I I quoted earlier. You may have heard it before. When he said, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between these two poles, my life flows. Please let the metta carry you to this connected feeling with everything. Please let Vipassana carry you to this wisdom of not being anything particular. Let's just sit for a minute. 